This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Inglis sales graduates dominated the Group 1 scene right through the 2019-2020 season. They got away to a flying start when Samadout won the Wink Stakes, the first Group 1 of the season. Vow and Declare won the Melbourne Cup, Exceedance won the Coolmore Stud Stakes, Super Seth won the Caulfield Guineas, Natoya the Doncaster, Quick Thinker the Australian Derby, and Nature Strip the TJ Smith, just to name a few. In total, Australia's leading thoroughbred auctioneers provided 22 individual Group 1 winners. They had the biggest number of stakes winners who won the biggest number of races. Inglis sold the highest number of three-year-old Group 1 winning Colts and the highest number of stakes winning fillies and mares. Won't be long now and the Group 1 round starts all over again with the Wink Stakes at Randwick on August the 22nd. You can bet the English graduates will be right in the thick of the action again in the new racing season. I've had great respect over the years for Australia's country race callers. The broadcasters who travel long distances to cover meetings in their local regions, commentators whose voices become synonymous with racing on the bush circuits. Recently retired Kim Stewart didn't spend his entire career based in a country region, but he gave great service to the racing industry in the northwest of New South Wales for some 23 years before moving to Sydney in 1995 to take up a permanent role with 2KY. In seven years with the station, now known as Sky Racing Radio, Kim became a regular studio host and was often called upon for race-calling duties. The one country club with which he's had an unbroken association is the Corindai Jockey Club, and in recent times he'd actually renewed acquaintances with several of his old race clubs in the area as a support to the Sky team. As his 70th birthday approaches, Kim thought it was time to put the binoculars aside. He intends to continue with another craft he's perfected over the years, and that's the art of auctioneering, these days selling real estate rather than livestock. Kim Stewart is one race caller with a genuine understanding of horses. He's been riding since age four. He's owned or part-owned several racehorses during his career and continues to race a horse or two. He's been a great ambassador for racing in the northwest of New South Wales and an accomplished exponent of the race broadcasting profession in Australia. I didn't want him to get away without congratulating him on that distinguished career and thanking him for a great contribution to country New South Wales racing. Kim Stewart, a delight to catch up. John, thank you for that introduction. It was very eloquently put. I can... Uh... And I recall a few of those things, but I tell you what, it's been a wonderful time. And as you say, the time comes to an end sometime and uh, I've decided to retire. Um, yeah, look, there are a few political issues as well and you don't need all that sort of stuff at my age. So uh, I always said that when I didn't look forward to going to the races, I'd give it away or when I was 70. Well, both things pretty well happened at the same time. 
You know, you were in the news on social media back in January when you called a 1,000-metre maiden at Walker, won by a horse called Trip to London, which paid about $126. Now, you and trainer George Woodward share in the ownership of that filly, and you were remarkably composed on the day. I don't know whether I was composed, but uh, I think I said I was very excited, but it was most unusual that it was going to happen. She was an emergency. Uh, she mm. got a start. She was $126. She'd had no form. She'd been to Barrowville the start before <laughs> and beaten out of sight, which uh, is not hot form for what was the most prestigious maiden in Australia at one stage, the Ron Martin Memorial Maiden. It mm. was the dearest maiden. The uh, the best prize money in Australia for a maiden for many many years until such time as everything caught up. But it's still a highly regarded race up here, one that everybody wants to win, no more so than than Tim Martin who was up there at the time. Mm. But uh, George, who trains on the Walker Walker track, was absolutely thrilled, and so was I. Well, she won by almost six lengths, but she hasn't repeated at Kim's. I think she's had seven starts since, uh, to no avail. Oh, John, there were a lot of uh, a lot of factors helping her that day. The heavens opened. It was very wet. It was very heavy. She was on her home track, which is uphill and down dale. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes, yeah, since then, well, yeah, things just haven't gone right, have they? Mm. Kim, <laughs> I mentioned in the introduction that you began riding horses when you were only four years of age and you were taught to ride by family friends Barry and Brian Fullwood, Mm. But your style was later tweaked by a man called Noel Mully, a brother to the legendary Athel George. Yes, he was, and uh, we knew him as George Mully. Um, Noel Clarence was his proper name, but I don't think anybody ever knew that. He was always known as George. He was a big fella, um, so actually uh, putting him as a as a brother or a half-brother to uh, to George Athel um, was a little bit difficult, but yeah, Barry and Brian Ford. Barry became a horse trainer out in the Western Districts after a fairly colourful career, mm. and Brian Dad worked for Dad out on on a property called Silverware that Dad was fortunate enough to be able to buy mm. um, uh, when I was only fairly young, and he was in the stock and station agency game, and the gentleman who uh, wanted to sell it fairly quickly was um, kind enough to afford terms to Dad, so he he. He bought it, and uh, Brian was living in the big house there, mm. and uh, he uh, he and Barry taught me to ride. I remember turning up there one day then. They said, you've got to come and learn to ride, and I remember turning up with two six-guns on the hips because I thought <laughs> I was going to be a cowboy. And they were, yeah. they were Wyatt Earp Buntline specials that I'd got from a birthday, mm. and they took one look at me and said, who's this wood duck? <laughs> yeah. Doing your impression of Randolph Scott. Yes, that was it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you could obviously sit on a bit because you competed for some years at pony club and horse shows and jamborees, and I think you turned up at a rodeo once or twice. What did you do there? Oh, that was only for camp drafting, John. I was never going to get on any of those bucking horses. I've, I've been mm. thrown up enough times, I think, without having to do it deliberately. Mm. But, um, yeah, look, I had show horses and jumpers and we went to jamborees and Won a couple of six-bar jumping contests at Jamborees, and they were great days. We, were, mm. we, were, we had a lot of fun, and, and George Mully, 
he used to drive the truck and we'd go and camp out at the various showgrounds and light a fire and mm. have a billy tea and we'd done a lot of droving together and uh, things like that. And he taught me a lot about horses and horsemanship. He taught me how to bleed a horse, which not many people can do these days, I don't suppose. And the mm. first time I saw it, I was aghast because a, a bucket of blood came out of his horse's neck. Mm. Um, he also taught me how to cut out a stone bruise and one of the first racehorses I ever bought uh, by accident, I think, <laughs> at a sale, uh, it wasn't very much. It was a horse called Marshall Scott. It had come over from the from the coast. Mm-hmm. And he took it out to the farm and he, and he said, we better drench this and get all the pawpaws, bananas and pineapples out of it before, <laughs> before it goes to the track. Yeah. He had a sense of humour, George. Yeah. He's an old bachelor. Mm. You talk about bleeding horses. A lot of the old-time thoroughbred trainers uh, were very proficient in the art and Veterinary surgeons, you know, Kim, to this day, can't give you a technical explanation for mm. why the bleeding of a horse improves their appearance, but it does. Oh, it certainly does, and um, I don't think it ever hurt them. I think it was just like a a, a tonic, really, mm. uh, the building of new blood, but you don't see it very often these days. You know, you were born in Tamworth. You had your early education there before being accepted by the famous Scots College in Sydney, where one of your classmates was the future father of a legendary jockey, and I think you became pretty good mates. Yeah, Jimmy Bowman and I played football together. We were in the halves. He was smaller than I, so he was the halfback and I was the 5'8". Mm. Uh, we didn't reach any great heights, but we had a lot of fun. And then, of course, Hughie went back to Scots afterwards and, uh, oh, look, they were funny old days. You were locked up 24-7. I didn't start out enjoying it, but as we got further into it, um, I became good mates with John Crowley, the, the vet who's just mm-hmm. uh, won the uh, the Doncaster this year with Natoya. Yeah. We, we, ran the, we ran the book at school um, on a Friday. On a Friday, we used to have to go to cadets and we'd have to wear a kilt and we had a thing called a sporran in front of us, which was like a little um, <laughs> leather uh, pouch thing around your waist, and it it seconded very well as a bookmaker's bag. So uh, <laughs> you'd be marching along uh, to the jingling of silver in your sporran, mm. and I had some tickets in there, but uh, we had to give that away when uh, I think when Boyhead won his his Caulfield Cup, his winning of the Caulfield Cup just about bled us dry. So we gave that away, mm. and um, the Greyhound Recorder became one of. <laughs> <laughs> the required re- reading matters on a Friday night at, yeah. at prep, yeah. And yeah. Uh, we went to the Greyhound Dogs, not John. He was he was a prefect. He wasn't allowed to go to the Greyhound Dogs. But um, mm. we used to go most Saturday nights, another mate of mine and myself. In fact, Rod Ritchie, who's, who's uh, pater- maternal uh, grandfather, I think, raced Peter Pan. Mm. Um, but uh, Rod and I used to go off and we went with a fellow by the name of Johnny Lamb, who's whose parents owned 2UE at the time. Mm. And uh, Johnny staked us to, to go to uh, Wentworth Park. We had we had a staking plan, which we thought worked, and uh, we went out there for a while. We went okay for a while. We got enough to buy a little lost an A40, which we weren't allowed to have, and parked it a couple of blocks away so we could get yeah. there quickly. Mm. And one day there, or one evening in the mess hall on a Saturday evening, we were all set to go, and there was a, um, a message came over the PA would, uh, would Kim Stewart please report to Sergeant Murray's office? Well, he was the school disciplinarian. He had about seven canes mm. in the corner, and uh, he was a pretty strict man. And I thought, oh, here we go. What's this all about? So I go down there, and I, 
Hello, Sarge. And he says, Stuart, are you going to see King Lear tonight? Because I think I was seeing King Lear on the leave pass for about the 14th time that year. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, Sarge, yes, I've, I've got to go. It's in the curriculum, you know. We've got to learn it for the uh, high school certificate. And he said, here's 10, Bob. Would you have it on number eight in race three for me? <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the dogs. Yeah, he knew where we were going. Yeah, no, he's a a, a good man. You know, many young people in school years have absolutely no idea what they're going to do in life. But you had it down to two distinct categories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I always wanted to be a vet. I'd always been around horses. I was fascinated by um, people like old Bill Lockerbie, who was the local vet here, and I'd helped him pull calves, et cetera, out on the farm. And I wanted to be a vet. Um, I thought I did well enough at school, not that I tried all that hard, but I did well enough at school to get a Commonwealth scholarship and I thought I'd get into vet, but I missed out by two places and I was, mm. was a bit devastated. But um, so I, I I asked mum, I said, look, I think I'd like to go show jumping for 12 months, take the truck and go around the shows with John Crowley and Helen Cameron, who was his later, who became his wife later, <coughs> pardon me, and uh, – then became John Page's wife, and I wanted to go and do that. That, that was soon hit on the head. She said, no, you're going to go to university and you're going to do law. Mm. And I said, no, but I want to be a race caller. And she said, no, you're not. So <laughs> that was the end of that uh, theory for a while. But, yeah, it took a long, long time, John, but I, I eventually scratched the itch to do it professionally and for a, as a full-time job. During your time at Scotch College, you turned up one day at an English sale at the mm. historic New Market Complex. You were taken out there by an uncle who has since passed on, and you say this was the defining moment for young Kim Stewart. We were allowed out on a Sunday with a relative when we were fairly young at school, and uh, Uncle Len, that was Mum's brother, he used to come down to the Sydney Royal Show every year and bring a fat steer down. It was his annual holiday, and uh, he had a bit of a glint in his eye too, Uncle Len. So he came to Sydney and he stayed up at King's Cross with Arthur Pollock. Um, but he came out and took me out that day and he took me to the yearling parade at Newmarket Complex on the Sunday. They used to have a yearling parade there on the Sunday. And yeah. I was absolutely, absolutely um, hooked on these horses, the wonderful thoroughbreds. I've been around horses all my life, but... I'd never actually been to the race as much because Dad wasn't a racing man. My grandfather was. He he was mm. he was a, he was a very very prolific owner. My grandfather, but Dad never was. So we never went to the races. But oh, I just loved the look of the thoroughbred, and from that day on, that uh, that got me going. And I I listened to all the races. Um, Andy Vincent at Harold Park did the Daily Double back in those days. Yeah, Ken Howard, of course, Billy Hill at Newcastle, mm. uh, Bert Bryant. They were. And any any moment I could possibly get to listen to them, even on a crystal set yeah. at school, which you weren't allowed to have, I could uh, I could mm. pick them up and, and listen to them. Yes, it was uh, it was uh, it was certainly an interest that started then and kept going. I seem to remember a very young Kim Stewart from Tamworth practicing race calling from vacant broadcast boxes at Harold Park Trots mm-hmm. and at the Canterbury Gallops. Yes, that was after I left school. I was, yeah, I was doing law. I did what I was told, but <laughs> but I was out at uh, out at the races more often than not. 
and uh, yes, that vacant box right down the right-hand side of the old standard Canterbury became a bit of a camping ground of mine. And also, there were two boxes directly opposite the winning post on the far side of the track at Harold Park. There were mm. two boxes there. And um, the gentleman and the legend Ray Conroy used to call in one of them, and I used to practice from the other one. Mm. And uh, I can remember many, many nights there listening to the stories from Ray Conroy, and I was fascinated. And uh, I can also recall at uh, Canterbury, you were calling at that stage. You'd, you'd started your career there, and um, I can remember playing you some tapes and mm. and uh, asking you for critiques of those tapes. I hope I listened intently, and I hope the advice was sound. I'm sure it was, and <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> I can't recall. <laughs> well, you did a good job for a lot of years, so I must have been able to get through to you on the day. Oh, no, you were, you were very kind. And another time you were very kind, John, later on, we'll probably get to it, but I'll, I'll, I'll relay the story now. Um, when I went to 2KY um, back in 1995, uh, Rod Fuller and I used to share the duties on a Sunday when they had Sunday racing down there because Ian Craig didn't like working on Sundays and that was good. That was to our advantage. But I had had a couple of days up at Walker. I went up on the Thursday and um, did a Calcutta the Thursday night. The Walker Cup was on Friday. Friday night was a dinner and a dinner dance and, of course, uh, a non-tabber on the Saturday. And that evening I had to get in my car and drive back down through Gloucester through pouring rain, get to Sydney where I was uh, living at the time and uh, prepare to go to Warwick Farm the next day. Well, the next day at Warwick Farm, about race four came around, and uh, I was feeling fairly weary at that stage of the game, but, you know, I was still on the on the ball, I thought. And there were three horses in that race with red, white, and blue colours from the 1,400 metres at Warwick Farm, which is not the most uh, pleasant place to call races from. But anyway, um, cut a long story short, I uh, I had them right for most of the time, until they went over the line and I called something first in red, white and blue colours, that was all good. And I went back through the field and I got to the last one. It also had red, white and blue colours and I'd realised that I'd called the wrong horse the wrong name. So the first became last and last became Mm. first. Lonely feeling. Oh, it is. But I did pick it up at the time and all I said was, look, I've stuffed up, I apologise, this is what's happened. (laughs) And then you were calling the next box next door and I just crawled into a corner <laughs> that's all you could do at the time mm. and uh, just before the next race you came in and said kim he said i've forgotten to learn the colors in this race i've been chatting to my old mate out the back here uh, i'm going to put you on to the uh the course uh, on course broadcast if you don't mind and i said oh, i don't mind but it was it was your way john of dusting me down brushing me off and slapping me on the rump and sending me again <laughs> and, I, and I certainly appreciated it. Um, you, uh, you probably remember. You'll probably deny it, but I know that it, uh, I know what you knew what happened, and I'll never forget that that act of sportsmanship and gentleman and the gentlemanly act that you did. And I've, I've never forgotten it. And I thank you for it. Kim, it's like falling off a horse, mate. You've got to get straight back on. You do. You do. You've got to get straight back on. Otherwise, you never will. You know. Uh, oh, time to pause for a break. 
before we continue with Kim Stewart, a quick break on the podcast back in a moment. New South Wales TAB punters, here is your chance to share in $1.3 million in prize money when the Kosciuszko is run at Royal Randwick on October the 17th. You could share in the ownership of one of the 14 runners in the world's richest race for country-trained horses. You're in the running if you purchase a $5 ticket via the Tab app or at your local TAB outlet or enter as many times as you like by purchasing multiple tickets. Ticket sales close on September the 7th and 14 winners will be drawn on September the 9th. If your name or the name of your syndicate is drawn, you'll then have the opportunity to select a horse to race in your entry. Then your negotiating skills will be put to the test as you endeavour to reach agreement with the owners regarding a prize money split. Bell Flyer won it in 2018, Handle the Truth won it last year. You could share in the ownership of the 2020 Kosciuszko winner when the big race is run at Randwick on October the 17th. Tickets are available right now via your Tab app or at your local TAB outlet. My special guest is recently retired racing commentator Kim Stewart. Kim, your very first crack at the real McCoy took place at the Tamworth Show, where you call some of the trotting events under the tutelage of a man I remember well, Gordon Turner. Yes, Gordon used to come down and call the trots at the Tamworth Show. My dad was the um, was the, the on-ground announcer there and had been for many years, and he was good at it too, and he did a lot of the Jim Carners around here as an adjunct to his business as a stock and station agent. that certainly helped, and he was a trustee of the show society. But Gordon Spanker-Turner, as we knew, he was a very dapper man, as you may recall. He yes. He a pork pie hat, and he came down. And he he got me interested in it, and he he virtually showed me what he did, and that was about uh, that was about the beginning of it. And I think I just sort of – I never had the paddle pop sticks or the marbles like anybody else, but uh, – um, that's where I got my first first tutelage, as you call it, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was good. And then I also went to a lot of shows after that, calling the trots, including Toowoomba, where I worked with an absolute gentleman by the name of John Nash. Mm-hmm. You may recall John; he was the ground announcer for the Sydney Royal Easter Show. Mm-hmm. He had those dulcet tones, and he also had uh, a bit of a gig on the ABC radio, but. A nicer man and, a, and a, a better voice you'd never hear. He was an absolute gentleman. Your long-awaited break came when a man called Norm Hughes gave you the opportunity to call the Tamworth Trots in 1972, your first paid job. I imagine the wages were light, but the exhilaration was boundless. John, the wages were light, but... Oh, that didn't matter. I was I was living in Sydney at the time, and and um, I got a bit sick of that university cape, or it got sick of me, one or the other. I didn't pass too many law studies. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Norm Hughes was the president of Myers up here, or the, uh, the the manager of Myers up here. And he was the president of the Tamworth Trotting Club, and he'd heard that I was a bit keen, and he sent the message out. And uh, yes, I I came up here and uh, started there in 1972. It was just a very small little broadcast box about. 100 metres back from the line, it was only about three feet off the ground with a little ladder and it was covered with an old wheat bag in case it got to rain. But that was where I first started. And, um, yeah, the old Tamworth showgrounds hold a, a special place in my heart. 
Your first thoroughbred opportunity came in Armadale in the days when a lovely man called Kingsley Crouch was president of the Jockey Club. Now, the Armadale Club, Kim, uh, were one of the very first country clubs to go live on Club Superstation in the pre-Sky Channel era. I remember that day clearly, John. I was very, very proud to be, well, I thought it was the first one, um, the first uh, uh, country race meeting to be televised. It was on Club Superstation. Uh, Graham McNeese, I believe, was involved at the time. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was a... That was a thrill and a half. And actually, the, my whole career at Armadale was wonderful. I really enjoyed it up there. The Armadale Cup meetings, many, many of which you came up to call. Mm. Uh, and uh, we had some wonderful times. There was no doubt about that. And, uh, yeah, it, it, was a good, it was a good opportunity. And that led to then doing Tamworth and then Corinne Dye after Des King, who was, mm. who was uh, calling up here for a long time, and Wayne Hickson, a very good caller. They both retired. And um, I continued to do Tamworth and uh, Corindai. Mm. Uh, Corindai, of course, up until just now. I'm a bit sorry to, uh, that I had to, um, to call it quits on Corindai, but look, you, you can't be half pregnant. And they only had about four or five meetings a year, but mm. they're wonderful people down there and they, they, um, they accepted it. And, uh, and uh, I'm sure that we'll all remain friends for a long time. The race calls of country commentators were being used by radio stations all over the country for no financial acknowledgement. And I think you and the late Tony Campbell went in to bat for them. Yes, we did. Um, the clubs were looking after us at the time, but we were going everywhere and uh, we just felt as though, you know, you're on a hiding to nothing anyway, especially when you're going that far and wide. And Tony and, and myself, we, uh, we arranged meetings or... Uh, we had the meetings arranged for us down in Sydney and we went down there to the uh, TAB headquarters and who was there? I think Mick Moy, Ross Cribb might have been there. There's yes. a fellow by the name of Daly who was in charge of Sky Channel by that stage of the game mm. and we negotiated a fee. This, I seem to recall, it might have been back in about the mid-80s and yeah. we, we, we negotiated a fee of $200, which was pretty good. Yeah, the back then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, back then it was, it was. It only remained $200 until the turn of the century yeah. when it went up to 250 and that's where it stayed <laughs> with no remuneration for a car. I mean, I'm yeah. not whinging because I kept doing it and I love doing it, but uh, gee whiz, it's, you, you're not going to get rich on it. No. Gary Daly is the man you're trying to think of. That's the chap. Yeah. Who, who he, had was a, it? yeah. he had a brother up here called Greg who was a bookmaker. That's right. Yes, I remember he told me that story one day. Now, in the early 1990s, 2KY decided to streamline its networking of racing to the country regions, and former Labor Premier Barry Unsworth was now running the radio station, and he went on a country tour investigating the narrow-casting opportunities in different locations. He turned up in Tamworth... I think he was a guest on your radio show there, and it was a life-changing meeting. It certainly was. Um, Barry came to town with a fellow by the name of Max Carter, who, who was the head technician at uh, Sky Sports, or 2KY at the time, and now Sky Sports Radio. Still mm. there, I think, Max. Yes, and, he is. Um, yeah. we, had, we had lunch uh, because I think John Walsh had given me a bit of a knockdown to Barry. And we had lunch, and I asked Barry to come on to my radio station, which was on the ABC. It was only a two-hour show on a Saturday morning. It did races and general sport, etc. Mm. some interviews. 
So he came in and I interviewed him regarding the narrow casting and the broadcasting of races because the ABC had dropped them at that stage of the game and we couldn't get them in the bush. We, we, we just couldn't pick up the races. So um, they were on to a winner. And uh, anyway, the ABC got wind of the fact that I'd interviewed Barry about the races and they weren't happy, so they sacked me. And um, <laughs> <laughs> But Barry came good and he said, well, come down for three months' trial over Christmas while Matthew Browning goes on holidays mm. and um, – We'll, we'll see what works out. Anyway, had the three months trial, got the job, and I was there from 1995 mm. through till 1992, first of all on the narrow casting stations, mm. and then um, on the, on to 2KY, the main the main uh, racing station in Sydney, uh, following after a gentleman whom I have the most respect for and whom I regard as the best all-round broadcaster I've ever heard, and that is Ray Warren. Mm. He was doing, um, he was doing uh, general general broadcasting, then politics and all that sort of stuff. And he's very good at it too, right? Yeah. And uh, I remember having to go into the into the studio following Ray. It was about 11 o'clock and I'd been on the narrow cast for two hours and then I'd have an hour on 2KY after Ray. And um, Ray would have these headsets turned up to maximum volume. The first day I walked in, they just about blew my head off. <laughs> and not only that, his chair was so hot. Yeah, <laughs> he he just he, he put a lot of energy into into his broadcasting, right? He should, and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, look, that was fun. That was that was a great gig, and I really enjoyed it. Made so many friends. Dallas Baker, my producer, uh, we remain. He's a lot younger than I um, at the time, but we remain very very solid friends. Now, I remember when he first walked in, and I met him. He had. Doc Martin shoes with the laces undone. He had a cap on backwards and he had an earring and a nose ring. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I doing here? But he probably took a look at me and saw, you know, here's a bloke in a, in yeah. a pair of Ed's pants and a pair of brown riding boots with a shirt and a tie. What's going on with him? So, yeah, so, yeah. The feeling <laughs> well, yeah, was mutual. <laughs> yes, I dare say so. But we, we got it together after a while and uh, we had a few mistakes and a few learning lessons as we went along. But, yeah, look, good fun. Good fun, and it was a great gig. Just getting back to Ray Warren and his remarkable versatility, which is so well recognised, but the fact that he had those headphones <laughs> blasting away at mm. top volume for so long might explain the fact that his hearing is slightly impaired today. And the experts reckon that continued use of headphones at high volume can destroy the high-frequency levels in one's hearing. And that's why you've got to repeat everything for Rabs. I don't doubt it. I didn't realise he was having hearing problems now, but I don't doubt that he was or is. Um, he denied it at the time. He said, no, my hearing's okay. My hearing's okay. I can hear everything. I said, well, no wonder you can hear everything. You've got to yeah. turn it up so loud. But, uh, oh, no, he was a funny man. Um, he, always, he was always after a tip. And uh, I've got a very good friend up here and a very good judge in John Cunliffe and he used to find a few long-priced horses and just let me know that he thought they were okay. Mm. And anyway, Ray asked me for this tip one day. I forget what the horse was, but mm. it won. It won. And um, it's first over the line at a big price, 50 to 1 or 66 to 1 or something along mm. those lines. And Ray came in, yahooing, and you, beauty, you thank you very much. I've got the quadrilla, the, the quinella, the citronella, the whole lot, the whole lot of the ellas and all yeah. this sort of stuff going. Anyway, I lost on protest. So we didn't see him. <laughs> we didn't see him for a while. <laughs> that's story of rabbit's life, lost on protest. That's it. That's it, yeah. yeah. Kim, you're a third-generation auctioneer. 
Your grandfather started Inglis and Stewart in 1914. Your father kept it going for many years, during which time you learned the trade comprehensively and you still operate under the trade name of A.L. Stewart and Company. Grandpa would be very pleased with that. Yes, look, I've, I've maintained it. It's over 100 years now, um, 106 or 7 years or something that it's been going for. It, it is interesting that he started out as Inglis and Stewart. He must have been mates with well, Bill Inglis or somebody along those lines in the first days. It didn't last long mm. because he just went out on his own as A.L. Stewart and Co. And I'm the third generation uh, of the family to um, to run the business. It's still an auctioneering firm. Back then, of course, we did stock and station. We had sales every Monday morning starting at 4 a.m. in the cold and everything. Why it had to be on a Monday, I don't know, because you couldn't do anything on a Sunday if you, well, you did. You weren't feeling very well on a Monday. Mm. But, um, but uh, yeah, look, uh, it's something I'm proud of. My kids won't carry it on. None of them are interested in it, but, mm. um, but uh, I am. And uh, I'll keep going while I've got my good clients in Sydney and I enjoy doing it. So, yeah, it's good to carry on. You've worked at almost as many auctions as you have at race meetings. You've sold livestock all over Australia. Yeah, Perth. Um, I just uh, recall going to Perth about the time of the pilot strike. Chris Coles from Coles Bloodstock in Adelaide and I were asked to go over there and and do an auction, or Chris got me to go over and do it because he used to come up here to John Cumless Tamworth sales and we did those and Chris asked me to go to Perth with him. He said, Wilson Iron Bar Tucky mm. runs a, a sale over there in Perth and he said, it's great fun. He said, he puts you up at the Birdswood Casino and looks after you immensely and um, you don't have to do too much work because there's not a lot of horses there, so would you like to come? It's a huge beauty. So we went over there and uh, the pilot strike was, was looming Um but when we got there, we had to get a taxi out to this address, which Chris wasn't aware of, and we pulled up outside this two-and-a-half-star motel, mm. and uh, we walked in, and here was Wilson Ironbar Tucky. He was oh, doing something behind the bar or painting or doing something. He said, hello, boys. He said, uh, um, welcome to Perth, and we're looking forward to the sale. And, and Chris said, yeah, good night, Mr. Tucky. He said, um, what are we doing here? Can we go and check in at the Birdswood? And he said, no. He said, I've just purchased this hotel. You're staying here. Mm. So um, it was, uh, yeah, as I say, it was two and a half star. It wasn't the Birdswood, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wilson didn't seem to mind. And uh, we said, no. can we have a beer? And there was some beer behind the counter. And we said, we've had a long flight. Can we have a beer? He said, yes, help yourself. And then he gave us a bill for it. I thought, gee whiz, this is going to be fun. <laughs> He lost the National Party seat uh, in a shock decision. Mm. Uh, was it the seat of O'Connor in Western Australia? I think Australia? you might be right. I think uh, that rings a bell, yes. yes. He yes. was beaten just a few votes uh, by a younger man called Tony Crook, who is now the secretary manager or CEO of the Kalgoorlie Race Club. Well, there you go. You've got, you've got a wealth of knowledge, John, which I only can bow to. There's no yeah. doubt about that. <laughs> Kim, because that one was right off the cuff. I hadn't told you about Wilson Tucky beforehand, so you no. didn't even have any time to do any research. What's the famous nickname he had in the parliament? Ironbar. Yeah, Ironbar. Yeah, Wilson Ironbar Tucky. That was yeah. his name. Yeah, yeah. No, I did sell it a lot of places. Um, did a lot of selling in Brisbane for the QBBS. Uh, sold Rivada to Brian Guy up there. Mm. And um, ten thousand dollars. That's it. That was it. Yeah. And Brian was all, always uh, very mindful of the fact. And in, 
In fact, when he um, decided to sell his Rose Hill stables, mm. he gave it to me. He gave, and we auctioned the stables there and uh, sold those. Did you? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and Brian, of course, a lovely man, as you know, and Brian and Daniel are now very successfully based at the Gold Coast. I've got to get up and see them. I haven't seen them for ages. You were struck an unthinkable blow 12 years ago when your wife Barbara lost her life in a car accident travelling between Tamworth and Sydney. A tough time for you, for daughter Jill and son Jack. Yes, it uh, it certainly was. Um, as you know, I'd been living in Sydney, so those two kids were brought up pretty well by Barbara on a, on her own. Um, she was a she was a very good mother and and wife, more so than I was probably husband and father. But by the same token, we were all pretty close. And um, yeah, I had moved back to Tamworth at that stage of the game, and I recall her saying, "Look, I've." I'm going to leave work at about four or five o'clock and uh, to go down and see Jill because she was running in the Sydney half marathon or something and see young Billy, the mm. first grandson. Mm. So it was, she was killed in a head head on accident, not her fault, just outside Tamworth on the way down. She'd left early. And uh, yeah, when the police called that afternoon or that evening, they came around. I'd seen it on the television, but I, I didn't twig. No. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, it was a, it was a, and horrific time, especially for the kids. And now I'm so sorry that Barbara didn't get to see her grandkids because I've got five wonderful grandkids mm. and two two beauties, Jack and Jill. If you couldn't ask for two better kids, and uh, mm. and they're, they're so much fun, there's so much love, and I'm really enjoying um, watching these grandkids grow up because I didn't see them too often, Jack no, and Jill. No, mm. I know you've been asked this question a thousand times, but did you name your son and daughter? Jack and Jill, for any specific reason? Um, I, yes and no. Jill came first. Gillian Claire came first and she was the first born. And then the second born, Jack, he, uh, his, his actual name is Jonathan Lear because we've got a, a family tradition going back through Lear and Jack Lear didn't work. But he was christened Jack and he's always been known as Jack. And, yes, I, I guess so. Nobody ever forgets their names, and that's the most important thing because I was christened <laughs> Kim, Kimball Lear, and there'd only be one of them in the world, wouldn't there? And I'd there say so, more, yeah. Yeah, well, well Mum said, oh, look, it was such a, such a nice name, such an unusual name, and I said to Mum, I said one day, I said, what do you mean unusual? I said, there are 10 million of them over there in Korea. And she said, oh, don't be silly. Don't be silly. Korea wasn't even invented when you were born. <laughs> <laughs> Did she? Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, look, that's I get called Tim and Jim and Kerry and Chris and oh, all sorts of strange names. Mm. Nobody ever calls me. Those that know me closely, for the first time anyway. Mm. So I, they don't have to suffer that anyway. Now, Kim, we're going to quicken the pace here because – I want to look at some of the horses that have made an impression on you over the years. In the early 1970s, you formed a deep admiration for a flashy chestnut called Latin Knight, who was a really good three-year-old when trained by Maury Anderson. He won a Rose Hill Guineas. He won an Australasian Champion Stakes, which is now called the Spring Champion Stakes. Yep. And a Grand Prix in Brisbane, and he ran seconds in a Canterbury Guineas and an AJC derby. He was a flashy-looking customer, wasn't he? He was a shining copper coin that night, and he was just so honest. 
Uh, I think he also won the Sire's Produce and also the Champagne Stakes in 1971. Mm. So um, he's, you know, he he had a very very good winning record, and he was a tough little bugger. And I just loved him. I just liked the way he he uh, he used to do things. When he won that Rose Hill Guineas, I think he led all the way mm. um, and uh, fought on like a tiger on the line. Tried to do the same in the Derby, but was beaten by Classic Mission, who got right up on the inside with George Moore's whistle. Mm, and yeah. a four-year-old to boot. <laughs> I think Ray Selkrig rode Latin night in a lot of his wins, didn't he? He did, he did. Mm. There's no doubt about that, yeah. Yep. Now, you got to call the remarkable Aquazov many times in the bush. The iron gelding from the Merv Caller stable, who yeah. had 136 starts, 36 wins, 31 placings. He won his first race at Tamworth in 1992 and he raced for eight years. He had a win strike rate, Kim, of 26.5%. He won eight country cups. He won a couple at Canterbury. He won one at Rose Hill and he won a country cup at Randwick. He raced sound all the way through and he raced genuinely all the way through. He was an old freak, Aquasoff. He certainly was. The 1997 Grafton Cup was probably one of uh, the most memorable victories that he had. And I recall his winning the uh, Country Cup at Randwick. Uh, I was down in the owners and trainers bar at the time. Uh, when he went over the line, I looked over at one of the TVs, which was near the TAB, just as the as you come into that bar. And he was the loneliest person in the world sitting there looking at the uh, TV and starting to look around to see where everyone was. It was Merv, Merv Callis. Trainer, trainer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I walked up and gave him a big hug and he had tears in his eyes and oh, he was a lovely man, Merv. And he, was he was pleased to see somebody there to share the share. I don't know where Mia, Mia and Neil were at the time, but they must have been there somewhere. But, um, mm. yeah, look, great champion and one of my favourite horses. No, no doubt about him. Your passion for horse ownership is well known. And you've cheered a few winners home over the years, including Regal Rogue, a chestnut gelding by Brigand. He had 49 starts, 9 wins, 12 placings, and one of those wins was at Randwick in 1986 with a fella called Mick Johnson on board. He was a great bush jockey, Mick Johnson. Well, he was trained on that occasion officially by Bruce Johnson, um, Mm. who was... Mick's, uh, Mick was Bruce's uncle, mm-hmm. that's right. And uh, Bruce, of course, is the the wife of Chantel Buckley, um, who was married to um, Grant Buckley and a, a prominent uh, Sky hostess and a very good one these days. He, he's the uh, father of Chantel Buckley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, did I say something different, did I? I apologise. Um, yeah. And uh, Terry Wicks was, was overseeing the whole show at the time. He's... Uh, he was a, a very, very good jockey up here in the north and northwest, a good mate, and he's back training now too. So, yes, uh, Randwick Seaside Handicap in 1986, the best mm. race that he won, but he won a Gunnedah Cup in 1987. He won the inaugural Hillgrove Cup the same year, mm. along with those other races that you mentioned, and you've got a better record of him than I have because I'd forgotten that he'd won that many races. He really was an excellent horse. Now, we'll just whip through uh, a few of your choices of Horses and horsemen who have impressed you greatly over the years. The jockey for whom you had special admiration early in your career was John Duggan, another one of Theo Green's star protégés. Well, weren't they wonderful horsemen? And he, he was my favourite. Um, he had a wonderful seat on a horse. He looked so balanced. Every time that he, he paraded, you could tell which 
jockey was John Duggan because he had a unique seat and it was and it was and it was perfect almost. These days, um, of course, uh, you can't go past Hugh Bowman. He's a superb horseman, and uh, one of my current favourites is Rachel King. Mm. She certainly has a seat like John Duggan, and she is an unbelievably balanced jockey. And few Saturdays go by, Kim, that she doesn't have five or six rides on the Metropolitan Tracks. Well, I first saw her when she came to Crindy as an apprentice, and uh, I noticed her ability then, and I thought, this girl's going to go places. And I noticed in the paper this morning, John, that she's uh, she won the uh, the Hawkesbury Premiership as well. Yeah, she did, yeah. Mm. Mm. No, no, great she's girl. a beauty. Great girl, hard worker, and uh, she just she, she came here for a short time, liked what she saw, went back to England, uh, tidied up all of her affairs, came back to Sydney and asked initially James Cummings for a job when he was still training at Randwick. Mm. She was there for a short time and then she just bowled into uh, Tullock Lodge one morning and asked Gay Waterhouse for a job and she hasn't looked back. Well, she's certainly got the right mentor there because... Gay doesn't suffer fools, and she rec- she she gets the best out of them, but she makes them work, and she disciplines them uh, thoroughly, and she she schools them in life uh, life skills. Mm. And uh, so Rachel certainly has learnt well from Gay. There's no doubt about that. You'll continue to live in Tamworth, but you intend to commute to Sydney when required to discharge your duties as a contract auctioneer. And you're often called upon by Sydney real estate agencies. I'm down there most Saturdays. I was there yesterday. I've got a crook back from driving. But uh, as that seems to be the case these days. The old sciatic nerve plays up. I don't know how long, much longer I can do it for. But, um, look, I've got the utmost respect for some of these people. I don't do as much as I used to, but um, I've got some very good clients and they've become very good friends and, and we work well together. And I, I look forward to it, yes. Kim, you've been a great contributor to the racing industry for close to 50 years. You've been a terrific friend to racing in the north and northwest of the state. Congratulations on a big job. Well done, mate, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. John, thank you too. It's been an honour and a privilege, and I'll tell you what, this is going to go down well because I've got something now that I can tell my grandkids to listen to in the future. I don't have to explain it all to them. It's It's a great way of doing it, and I'm very, very pleased that it's on the record. Kim Stewart, this is your life. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.